I am here with uh, John Voss, who is the Strategic Partnerships Director at HistoryPen. Uh, John, uh, could you go into a little bit of your role at HistoryPen and describe what you do there? Sure. So, uh, Strategic Partnership Director, well, let me tell you a little bit about HistoryPen first to give you some context. Um, we're a project of a nonprofit organization called SHIFT. And the uh, History Pen Project is one of our bigger projects that started about uh, over five years ago now, um, well over five years ago. And our focus when we started was really on uh, creating intergenerational, intercultural conversations through history and ultimately building community around that local history. Um, so my role as Strategic Partnership Director is leading the um, many institutional partnerships that we have. So we currently have over 2,500 cultural heritage institutions, private archives, and those kinds of um, collaborative partners that we work very closely with. And we have about 65,000 individual users. So much of what I spend my time on is um, really fundraising and looking at opportunities for us to uh, do joint um, grant funded projects or what we call agency work, which is um, basically earned income for us in which we provide um, project expertise, either technical or community engagement for other funded projects. So those might be with National Archives, BBC, American Experience. Those have been some of our big partnerships on that level as well. Great. Uh, so with that, uh, what kind of background led you to actually getting to that position then? Um, yeah, so I kind of, I often say I have about a five-year career attention span, so uh, I changed things up pretty much uh, after, after about five or six years of doing something. So before this, I was a technology consultant. I happened to have a passion for history. And it was about 2008 or so, um, 2008-2009, I, I developed a project called Look Back Maps that was looking at um, a way to basically pin geographical data to online archival collections. And it's sort of like a Pinterest-type tool that would allow you to really easily, whenever you went to a collection, you could just add, or, add the geodata, and that image would then added to the Look Back Maps database. And so one of the things that I quickly found was, you know, because I just wanted to see the history of the mission, for instance, but I had to look at all these three or four different collections that had the most historical photos in there. And that quickly led me to realize, well, I was just building another silo database. Um, so a lot of my work then was really focused on how to break out of that and then really get us to start thinking about sharing um, cultural heritage collections. And so when history, the History Pin team was looking to launch um, in the summer of 2011, they were initially going to do that, uh, the launch in San Francisco. And so as they were talking to cultural heritage partners about that, everyone kept pointing us. And we ended up meeting up and uh, joining forces. So that's how I, how I got to that. Um, so mainly on those experiences, I had the, the technical skills to understand what they were trying to do, but also the um, background with nonprofits um, and 
social change work that, that allowed us to really look at the bigger picture of what we're doing now as well. Uh, all right. Um, so with that new database, is that what you'd consider the linked open data that uh, comes up a lot in your work? or? Yeah, well, that's what that's right. That's what started to get us there for sure. And back in, so I think that was around 2009 or so, and I had started with back maps and um, started to talk to some other kind of friends in the industry as well as uh, archivists and librarians about the possibilities here. And so there a few of us got together on this project called Civil War Data 150, um, and it was kind of a pilot project in essence. And, and what we did was, was Internet Archive himself, um, Lloyd Lindbergh, who was at San Jose, San Jose State um, as a MLIS professor, um, Mark Harvey at the Archives of Michigan, a few others of us. And, and importantly, it was also the team from MetaWeb, which started the project Freebase, and they've been several years ago, they were acquired by Google, um, and they lead the knowledge graph work now that, that's happening in Google. But what, you know, what that team really opened the eyes to as well was what we could do with the data and what the possibilities were. And really it started with this concept of sharing metadata with open licenses, but also using the technology of linked data to start to make it meaningful across multiple institutions. Um, when we put that Civil War Data 150 proposal into the NEH, <clears throat> we mentioned linked open data, and we kind of got a real strong response from them. That, you know, people really didn't know what that was, and that really pushed me and um, Chris Carpenter and Nagalescu, who was at Internet Archive at the time, uh, to start the Linked Open Data and Libraries Archive Museum Summit, which was funded by the NEH and the Sloan Foundation, uh, to start really in earnest looking at the possibilities here of what we could do in, in getting an international working group together. Uh, so since you brought up um, Civil War Data 150, uh, go into that. And uh, with that, I mean, you've been mentioning that there's been a lot of partnerships involved. Um, what's kind of the biggest challenge that you have getting those people to actually coordinate with each other to produce a project like that? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's been surprisingly few challenges is what we found over the years, and part of this is either being at the right place at the right time or just kind of a cultural shift that I think is more likely what's really happening across cultural heritage institutions. So with Civil War Data 150, um, we found that a, a number of institutions that had great Civil War collections were ready to jump in and contribute their, their metadata at that time, you know, this, again, this is 2009, 2010, the biggest obstacle was not technological, but it was political or policy oriented in that people didn't really understand just then what it meant to release their, their metadata as data, as something that can be usable for, um, you know, developers or scholars or anyone like that. And I think very quickly, that has reached a critical mass across the board that we see the, the value and the potential of putting stuff out there with open licenses, either in the public domain or um, with the CC0 license, which means to say it's Creative Commons. Anyone can use it for any reason. Um, you know, a lot of people still debate whether or not a lot of the collection data is actually copyrightable data at all within the United States law, um, that it's not a creative work. Whatever. So 
um, I think the, our, our barriers and challenges early on were political. And then um, with history pin, you know, as that's grown and taken off, what we're finding is um, what's really worked for a lot of particularly smaller institutions is that there's some really basic data normalization that needs to happen to share your collections. Um, and because we've had such simple uh, requirements for, for the data and for the content that's coming into history pin, it seems to have worked really well. Now when you look at projects like the Digital Public Library of America, uh, which is modeled in many ways that figure of Piana, you know, these massive metadata aggregation projects, um, you can get a lot more complicated in that data normalization, but that's where we're starting to get real usefulness of this stuff, where you can start to search collections across multiple institutions, where you can actually rebuild collections or um, repatriate collections, all kinds of different opportunities that are starting to open up to me. Yeah. Um, so, on your end, does that mean that you're helping them produce the metadata going in there, or is this all coming straight from their institutions? Um, they're kind of supplying the workforce for it and getting everything involved and putting the metadata up onto these aggregate sources. Yeah, that's that's a good question. It can happen a couple different ways. Um, for particularly for the smaller um, local cultural heritage organizations. They tend to use like the just the upload template that you see on our website. So they're doing an image by image. Um, they might have a folder of content. But we also have a bulk upload tool, and that's what we tend to use with um, bigger institutions or they have bigger uh, data dumps that they want to get up there or entire collections that they want to put up. So that can handle thousands of images at a time. Uh, and that's something that we've improved upon recently too. So now you don't actually have to upload the photo. You can just point it towards your high-res images and it'll go and fetch those or you can point it towards Flickr, et cetera. Uh, and we do help with those um, for particular collections. We, you know, we're a pretty small organization. We've got uh, two of us full-time here in San Francisco and um, got about, I think, six people in, in London headquarters and our deaf teams in Sofia, Bulgaria. There are another four or five people there. So you've got, um, you know, a, a pretty robust team, but in terms of the scale of working with thousands of institutions, we can't be as hands-on as we'd like to be. But we do offer, you know, some training and uh, videos and things that help show how to do these bulk uploads. And we'll get hands-on with, with some of the partners too. Um, just to kind of help them in the right direction. Uh, so with that, is, is it more the projects are geared towards institutions that already have these collections available? Because it seems like uh, with what you were saying that it was more so taking the metadata that they have and putting it up for image by image kind of deal rather than starting completely from scratch with an uncategorized, uncatalogued collection and going from there. Yeah, I think it go. I think we are sort of meeting in the middle from from both of those angles. You know, with the extreme being that you have this massive collection that you want people to engage with, and that's where we get a lot of the cultural heritage organizations partnering with us because they want to connect with the local communities. Um, and really, that has to do with making them relevant and findable geographically. Um, the other side of it is building collections from scratch where you've got a neighborhood organizer who's really interested in the history of their community or having conversations around a shared history 
and, and they're doing kind of user-generated content. That's a very different way of coming at it, where it is more on the one, one-to-one, and it also gives us the ability to focus much more on the conversations around that. Um, so, so I, I guess I would, that's why I look at it as, as kind of meeting in the middle from both of those angles. That, and, and where history pin sits in the middle is in this, this ability to really capture and engage around those communities. Uh, and that's really our focus, you know, it's, it's, it's how do you bring these collections to life, how do you make it relevant to people, but how do you also build it together with the aims of the local communities, uh, which is, to me, that's kind of the next paradigm that we're looking at for, for scholars, for cultural heritage organizations, um, the like. You know, it's not no longer this kind of ivory tower approach or someplace where you just go to absorb knowledge. It's, Cultural heritage organizations are much more focused on doing this together, and we feel like there's real social aims that we can measure and um, reach and impact on as well. So if you just reach out to the community, it's really a part of getting those citizen historians that you mentioned in your project. What exactly is a citizen historian? Why are they yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of people are seeing that, and if, you know, it's something that took off from um, this, this term citizen science. So there were a lot of big projects that were crowdsourcing projects asking people to um, record ship logs or transcribe ship logs or look for planetary patterns. Um, that data that was being farmed out. So Zooniverse is one of the great organizations that's forwarded some of this and helped make this a phenomenon. Um, so citizen history is, is really an extension of that, of um, you know, giving people the ability to help us understand these archival collections more. And what's interesting to me is, so you're talking about crowdsourcing in this context, um, and a lot of times that is um, really just an extractive approach in that we need people to look at these things or we need people to transcribe things. And there are many people who are willing to do that with their spare time or volunteer their time or even be paid for this kind of work. I've seen some projects using Mechanical Turk or um, Odesk to, to get some of this work done as well. We're now with History Pen and some of the work that we've done with Stanford and for a recent research project that was funded by the Mellon Foundation. We're really looking at the, the potential of going beyond that and looking at um, what we call working with knowledge communities. So as opposed to just saying, you know, we need this information, do you have the time to contribute? We're saying we need particular information about something that you know something about, and that might be your local community, it might be about an organization you are involved in, um, you know, it might be some, some special interest category like railroads or civil war that you might be interested in. So we're tapping into these knowledge communities and not only having them work with us on the research, but helping them co-design what that research might be. How is that useful for them as well as how that might be useful for scholarship, or how that might be useful for increasing uh, community connection and strengthening communities, et cetera. So once you amass all this information, how do you actually validate it? I mean, it's coming from individuals that more than likely don't have a background in history or research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we don't do 
any type of validation. We do leave that to the scholars or to the community. We focus in some ways a lot of times about the history of pop history, you know, and that it's, it's not necessarily going deep into the academic discipline of seeing all sides of it. But the hope is that it, it opens the door for that kind of research, allows people to dig deeper or to find where unique sources of information may lie within communities. Um, and then there's you know something we've talked a lot about over the years is subjective versus objective history. And if you've got a historical photograph, uh, you can scientifically or specifically or exactly find out where that photograph was taken. And by using street maps or street view and uh, Google Maps, we're able to allow that with the technology so you can say, this picture was taken in 1906 and it's looking at this building, but based on where everything lines up, I can see that it was taken from across the street at this time of day, et cetera. And that's a fact, right? Like there's, you can, there's no arguing that, but to say what the motivations of the person taking the picture or, you know, what was going on in that picture, now that takes a little bit more analysis and, um, you know, that gets into the real historical research. So we don't do any of that ourselves. Our hope is that we can facilitate the conversation in which people share that research and share those you know, the discussion and the discourse that gets in there. Um, so what's going on with History Pen and just that kind of contribution, um, if you go into the map on History Pen, there's literally just thousands and millions of pins on there. Um, but you also have a project section on your page. So kind of wondering the difference between those two and whether or not it's really a safe way from getting from a pin collection to the project or back and forth. Or yeah, I think there are a couple, a couple different ways of sorting down and really finding meaning in this. And this is something that's come from the scale that we've reached over the last you know, several years. Um, one is you can always sort by just location, in which case if you go to San Francisco, you'll see you know, 10,000 pins or something like this. So you can find what's what's applicable or what's of interest to you based on place, and that's always one way to sort the data, and then you can use the time slider to get you to the, the, you know, the particular point in time which you're trying to research or explore. Or if you're like me, you know, you just want to see what your neighborhood looked like 20 years ago or 100 years ago. But then you can get into, um, you know, a lot of the work is uh, these projects look cool. You know, we call them all collections now. In fact, we're just on the, on the cusp of relaunching our site, which will be happening later this week, which we're really excited about. Um, so now everything has, has a collection, and these collections might be part of a sponsored project. So one example is East of Main Street, which is a project of the Asian Pacific Islander community, um, and they're looking at historical places around the United States and the United States territories particularly. Um, and they're going around to see you know, what was Japantown like in this area or Filipino town or um, you know, where were the businesses of this particular community at the time? And so that gets grouped together as a specific collection, and people can add to that. And so that the group that's doing that, they're actually going out and actively doing workshops and teaching people how to put their collections up, and then they'll be represented in that project as well. Um, 
so you, that's what you're kind of you're seeing with these these special collections, if you will, mm -hmm. um, and and the ability for people to do crowdsourcing around that or to work with their own communities around that. Uh, and what we'll see on the new site starting next week is that anyone can create their own collection. Say, I want to learn more about the history of my neighborhood, and they can invite you know other people to contribute to that as well. So those are you know, the idea there is now we're, we're, we're moving more towards just content on a map, but to the communities that work around that content or that develop that, those collections together um, and explore the history together. Uh, so how does History Pin kind of promote that community involvement then? Um, is it just going through kind of advertisements or media campaign with your site, or is it sending different people out there? Yeah, it, it tends to be promoted by the, the the people on the ground, and ultimately, you know, we're a platform. Um, that's some some of our our projects over the years have been involved. You know, we will have a community officer that's involved in soliciting some of that, but it really doesn't scale. Uh, and with our focus being on strengthening local communities, what we want to be able to do is provide better and better tools for people to gather this information, to have community engagement events that they run on their own, um, that they can share with the community of people who are doing this around the world, but that their impact, that they're looking to measure, and that's another thing that we look to do, is give them measurement tools um, to be able to say, we took, you know, we had these existing collections, we gathered memories from seniors that were, you know, that lived here for 60 years or something like that. And that we're able to connect younger people with older people, and that over time, that actually strengthened the community. That's what we're hoping to prove, and that's what we believe much of this work is able to do. So now we're looking at evaluation methodologies um, and toolkits that people can use to do this. But yeah, ultimately, it's, it's within those communities that they're being promoted. And of course, we have our own social media channels that we talk about those with. But as you'll see on the new site starting next week, um, you know, more and more it's going to be about people sharing their own tactics and, and their own things and are being able to improve upon the tools that they need to do to make that impact. Uh, since you brought it up, uh, how is social media going to really impact what you're going to do next week? Well, um, so uh, I, it's interesting that we use I would say Twitter probably primarily of our social media. We also have a Facebook channel that we share on. But um, I mean, it, it's pretty consistently remarkable to me how much is going on on a daily basis that we're hearing from people around the world um, that will either just tag us on HistoryPin or mention us so we get a, kind of get a sense of what's going on. People are running workshops on how to use HistoryPin that we really only find out about when, when they happen to mention this one on social media or on Twitter or Facebook, something like that, that we get a flag. And then we'll reach out to them and say, oh, what did you do? This, this looks amazing. Send us some pictures, a new blog post, et cetera. Um, so that's that's how it's, you know, ultimately we're spreading the word that way. Mm -hmm. um, but again, a lot of what's happening, we just, we don't know about it um, because it's out in the community. So we might, it'll be, and, and that's one of our challenges, I think, on the new site is, is to really surface this this interesting community, but more importantly, those community experts or community 
you know, call them cultural heritage activists or, or you know, like people who are really involved and impassioned about this, not just for their own interests, but for the interests of, of a broader community. Uh, those are the stories that we hope to highlight more in the coming months and years. So, uh, I mean, would you have somebody that could literally sit there, or would you want somebody that could literally sit on, say, Twitter, Instagram all day, just kind of looking through tags of maybe a certain city or something like that, just kind of find more images and more products and more data to kind of throw into your... Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's, so one of the things that we see a lot of is so many communities have, and, and this is something I see more on Facebook than on Twitter, like they have, um, you know, there's there's one for, histor I don't know, I can't remember what it's called, there's like a historical San Francisco one where people are posting older photos, or one that I look at is um, up in the Russian River, which is north of San Francisco, a couple hours, you know, small community, vacation community, and people will post old photos there. You see this in just about every community. And the problem with it is that, um, well, there's pros and cons, obviously. The pros are that somebody can post an old photo, everyone's going to see it, and they can very easily comment on it. But you're not necessarily getting much meaning out of that, nor are you able to preserve those photos in a place, you know, from a lasting perspective. So our challenge with history pin is how are we you know, like how do you tap into that, those conversations in a way that preserves or helps improve the metadata or helps us understand the community better? Um, and a big question to me would be, you know, if we were starting this over today, would we just build it as a Facebook app, for instance, because there's so many of those local projects. Um, and I think the my hesitancy would be that you just, you wouldn't have any, any kind of permanent log of this, nor is, would it be very easy to find a particular mean or measure impact through it. Um, but that being said, we have had projects where you, you are monitoring those groups, so you're inserting something into the conversation, or you're asking people, you know, oh, you shared this great photo, there's incredible, we were able to figure out based on the conversations that happened around it exactly where it was, or who was involved in it, is it okay for us to put that up on the street? And so we'll pull that in and, and preserve it. So to your question, would we have somebody that was just coming through that stuff good? You know, maybe it's that, that might be useful. I think that there is good community connections that are happening through those types of things. The challenge then is to get it to also happen offline, to, to make those one-to-one those -one connections so that we can start to hone in on, um, you know, can we, can we decrease social isolation of seniors, for instance? Can we increase cross-cultural communications in particular communities. Those are the aims that we're trying to move towards through that. And I think that much of that can happen on Facebook. Or at least it could start there. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good segue into kind of getting your advice on what an institution or even just those citizens can do and whenever they want to make a mapping project or contribute these types of photographs. And, yeah, so I think it, yeah, that's great. That's something that we, we talk about quite frequently, and I think it, a lot of it depends on intention, right? So if if, if your intention is to, to show a great map visualization, you might use History Pen for that, um, and there's things that we do really well around that, but you might also use Mapbox or CardoDB or, you know, some 
you know, put developers towards a, a, a visualization just to show off your content. But I think if you want to engage community around it, then you're really looking at coming up with long-term strategy. You're wanting to really understand your audiences. You're wanting to get a good sense of the baseline of your communities. Where, you know, where are there opportunities that we can improve connections? Where are there people who are isolated or otherwise underrepresented in our collections? And so there's a number of ways in which you might map your intentions. And I think that's a lot of the the work that we're doing strategically is thinking through um, what impact it is that cultural heritage organizations want to make on their communities besides just preserving history. And obviously that's, that, that stewardship is a huge part um, and a critical part of what these institutions are doing. But beyond that, what, is, what are the intentions of the engagement around those collections? Um, and I think there's, when you talk about just from the, the individual level of this, you know, it's it's amazing to build mashups and um, kind of showcase historical photos, buy up historical photos from garage sales and, and whatnot, but that there's real potential to use that, you know, use that, you know, those skills of mashing the photos or, um, or gathering the photos yourself to create community conversation and strengthen the communities through that shared history. Um, either to overcome differences within a community or just to, to reach people who otherwise aren't having conversations or don't have the opportunity to talk to one another. Uh, well, that is basically all the questions I had for you. Um, is there anything else you wanted to kind of touch upon? Or? Um, no. Kind of looking at, at some of these questions that we kicked around to. Um, I guess I guess what I'd underline um, when you're talking about particularly museums is, is, is the power of personal storytelling and um, this, uh, you know this shift towards a two-way street. You know that, that ultimately, to me, the, the evolution of the World Wide Web over the last 20 years has gotten us to a place where we work much more collaboratively, um, where we have conversations, where we have uh, two-way dialogue around important issues, and, and I think that more and more we're seeing museums tackle this this opportunity. Um, we're seeing them play a really active role in communities because that's you know, that's part of, of what they're doing. And I think it's it's interesting too. I know mean, I have to reflect. We were just last uh, on Friday we're working on a project at the Anna Public Library, and when you look at the, the importance of public libraries from what they're doing. One of the things that really stands out is that they're becoming more and more the last line of uh, defense for people who have nothing else. I was just shocked to see this huge homeless encampment around the library area, kind of the city center here in Indiana, and that they're, they're the last public resource to provide some, you know, some sense of access, whether it be Wi-Fi access, whether it be restroom access, to people who are in need. And this points obviously to a failure of uh, some of our public institutions to do that, that this is falling to libraries, but it also points to some of the opportunities that exist when we start thinking of cultural heritage, heritage institutions or organizations as lifelines to the public in more ways than one. So I'm really optimistic about um, how the 
these cultural heritage organizations are evolving uh, to be much more embedded in, in, in conversation with the communities that they serve and really looking at preserving the history of the people who are not represented and what we typically see in our museum or a history museum or you know, any, any kind of institution because that's just not what's, those are the stories or the artifacts or um, content that's been saved and preserved. So I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that on a hopefully optimistic note. Well. Uh, thank you very much for uh, letting us have this opportunity to talk with you. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, and I'm looking forward to, to what you're going to build for the next generation of uh, museums and, and cultural heritage organizations. All right. Uh, thank you. All right. Take care.